Hi everyone, and welcome to the Creatives to the Rescue podcast, a podcast exploring how creatives from all fields are tackling the climate crisis. I'm Danai, and due to the current situation with coronavirus, my friend and co-host Vansian is not next to me, but she's with us thanks to the wonder of technology. Hello! Today we are talking about festivals and sustainability. Arts and culture festivals have been an indispensable part of the creative industries, with some of them being turned into institutions. Coachella, Glastonbury, the Venice Biennale are annual milestones, attracting thousands of people every year. Many festivals act as platforms for political, environmental and social messages, so it is interesting to think about the environmental impact a festival might have. There are many things to be taken into consideration when calculating a festival's environmental footprint. According to recent research by the British non-profit organization Powerful Thinking, almost 23,000 tons of waste are produced by music festivals in the UK each year. Along with the waste produced by the audience while on site, the carbon emissions of the transportation of equipment, artists and festival goers, the intense energy used for the venues, the unsustainable food production and packaging, all culminate to dramatic figures. More and more festivals are taking initiative and changing to greener practices. Burning Man, one of the most universally popular festivals with an average of 70,000 participants every year, has always made an effort to leave no trace after the festival. But now it is turning towards green energy sources. DGTL in Amsterdam is planning to become one of the first zero waste festivals with reusable cups, compostable toilets and a menu created with imperfect produce from local suppliers. At the same time, non-profit organizations like Reverb and A Greener Festival are being employed to advise festival organizers on how to create a more eco-friendly edition for their festivals. In this episode, we are happy to be discussing sustainable event organizing with Kapija Zakarskaite and Sam Holt. Kapija is an architect based in London who specializes in sustainable development and low impact living. Sam is a structural engineer, event organizer and a DJ. Together, they have been organizing the Jumping at the Seaside Festival since 2015. Based in Brighton, it is a swing dance event, bringing dancers from all over the world for three days of classes and parties. Jumping at the Seaside has a clear sustainable agenda by trying to reduce waste and also communicate environmental sustainability. As Rufkian isn't here in person, I'll be doing the interview by myself, but she'll be listening in and will join us at the end. Hi guys, so we have Gabi and Sam today. Hello, hello. Hi. How is London? Sunny for once. Wow. It's beautiful, but we must stay inside. Yeah. First question is for Gabi, actually. You studied architecture at the University of Brighton, and then you specialize in sustainable architecture at Chalmers University in Gettysburg. Can you tell yes. us what attracted you to sustainability? Well, it's it's a funny story. When I um, applied to university in um, Gothenburg in Sweden, I actually um, applied for general architecture and I didn't get accepted. So <laughs> I got into sustainable architecture program almost by accident. And in the first two weeks, um, I started going to all these introduction lectures about sustainable design, environment, uh, sustainable materials and everything. And then I realized how lucky I was to get into this program. 
And then later on, I got actually offered to um, a place in general architecture. But by that time, I was so in love with the green sustainable architecture that I declined the offer. So then I stayed on this program uh, for two years and I loved every single day of it. You're one of the people that really inspired me in turning to sustainability. Um, and I think that many other people are being inspired by the things that you're talking, like you're posting a lot on your Instagram account, which is really nice. And then you both started doing uh, the Jumping at the Seaside Festival, which it's, I think, one of the very, very few swing dance festivals right now that have a sustainable agenda. Can you tell us a bit about that? Uh, how did that started actually how did you start thinking about turning it sustainable well when we first started jats we it was very very small to begin with um it was just us teaching at the first event also with a guy called martin ellis who came and taught like a two-hour solo jazz workshop and gabby and i taught a three-hour lindy hop workshop from then it sort of grew uh, quite organically which was nice and then when it got to a stage where we were having like over a hundred people at the event I think that's when we started realizing that there's quite a bit of waste um, produced from the swing dance event uh, and then obviously when we started uh, having international teachers come into the event there was of course this question of uh, flights uh, and travel as well yeah. yeah and I think it happened kind of in a similar time, um, when I was studying my degree is when JATS started growing so quickly because we do it twice a year. So it grows uh, much faster than perhaps annual festivals. Um, and in my program, um, Sustainable Architecture, we talk not just about buildings, but uh, carbon footprint of um, our daily activities, uh, working in the office, commuting, and looking for these different ways of how can we um, lower that impact. So it wasn't just Jack Festival that um, I was kind of inspired to um, start think about what can we do. It was kind of our lives as well, um, you know, from what we eat or what things we buy, how we travel. So Jats was just, it was never kind of intended to be a festival with sustainable agenda. It was just one of the things that, we do in our life and um, that we try to have you know a little bit of influence even if it's small things and I think it's still it it's not perfect but every year we try to review um our impact and see what are the things that we can do see what um, can be improved exactly yeah that's great so um what are actually your plans in making it a bit more sustainable for the next years do you have an agenda on that there's one big thing that we have a bit of an issue with, um, and that is actually <laughs> the waste. Um, in terms of the waste from the bar, um, the venue that we use, we actually use, uh, it, it's not in a super fancy venue, we use um, a high school, and the waste is all done through the system at the school. So it's kind of dictated to us how we can deal with um, all of the, you know, empty bottles, cans, all that sort of stuff that comes mainly from the bar, I would say, because we run our, the bar ourselves at the event. It's kind of disappointing because the school itself doesn't have a very strong uh, recycling guideline or ethos. Like there are recycling bins, but they're just for paper, cardboard. 
uh, and then everything else goes in sort of general waste. So it's kind of sucky. We, we pay actually a bit extra each time you run the event for the recycling to be done on our behalf. Our venue pay their waste collection people a bit extra to uh, take away our recycling. Um, and we sort of requested that happens because we could see that otherwise it was all just going into general recycling. Uh, and this was a way around it that we were able to achieve. However, since then, um, <laughs> it's just been a breakdown in communication and the venue haven't been clear with us exactly which bins we can put our waste in that will get recycled, etc. So it's been a bit of a pain. That's one major thing that I would try and improve is the communication between us and them. So we yeah. are crystal clear what is being recycled and what is general waste. I think it's something that, you know, sometimes as festival organisers, we have to work with the venue that we're using. So it's, I think, a big part just communicating with the venue and mm -hmm. asking um, what can we do to kind of reduce the waste. But I think one major thing that we did um, in regards to waste was to um, introduce our plastic cup uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> system um, because a lot of these events have uh, single-use plastic cups um, that people use for drinking water etc so before each festival we'll make an announcement about this uh, program where we tell people to bring their own cups or their own bottles so we actually don't encourage people to use the single um, use cups if people want to use a plastic cup they actually have to buy it for uh, 50 cents which is <laughs> so some people find really annoying why would I have to buy a cup I think it's worked quite well it though. worked so well actually it, we've not always done this by the way we should mention like initially when we first started having mm. the event growing we were giving everyone free plastic cups and when I would go and stock up for the bar I was <laughs> one I was spending a lot of money on bloody plastic cups that were going straight in the bin and two obviously it's a lot of plastic waste but then we just had this idea, I think it's when we were living in Sweden, yeah. that I had this idea to reduce the plastic cups. Yeah. I think the first festival, everyone was a bit confused. Mm. And then after that, because quite a lot of the attendees come back and they tell their friends, whatever, people were a bit more used to it. Um, yeah. So it's worked really well since then. In the last festival, we didn't have any complaints about the plastic cups no. or lack of them. Um, we, we had less waste and people bring their own bottles so much more often. And it's not just an issue of like tap water that we don't issue plastic cups. It's also at the bar. So um, we're fortunate enough to run the bar ourselves. So we can sort of uh, introduce these rules. I don't know if other events don't run their own bar, then it might be not be as easy. But we uh, give a 50 pence discount on all of the drinks at the bar if people bring their own cups. Um, or they can, again, you know, pay the extra 50p or not get the discount for their first drink and then just keep reusing that cup. Yeah, actually, I see more and more uh, festivals giving a little bag at the beginning, like some sort of franchise that they include a special cup with the logo of the festival. It's really interesting. Yeah. Do you think that... The event organizers and festivals in general have uh, like a responsibility towards sustainability that it needs to be communicated a bit more. Absolutely. I think not just dance festivals, but any event organizers have responsibility. Um, any um, institution, schools, universities, bars, restaurants, cafes, everyone um, 
around any industry need to take a share of responsibility um, where it comes to waste or energy or travel and all these kind of things. So I think the only way we can make an impact as a society is if everybody does um, something. Yeah, absolutely. And actually I wanted to ask, because you mentioned that um, you live both in Sweden and you live in the UK, you still live in the UK. How do you see sustainability implemented in both those countries, like common places and differences? That's a really good question. Uh, I think um, when, when we lived in the UK before we moved to Sweden, we lived in Brighton and Brighton is the only uh, green council uh, in the UK, or at least it was at the time. There might be another seat in Parliament now, I'm not sure. Um, so we were already coming from somewhere that we thought was pretty driven by um, yeah, environmental uh, sustainability. Um, but obviously, it wasn't as much as uh, Sweden is. Sweden's got a great infrastructure from uh, residential waste. They've got amazing systems for um, uh, doing your recycling. Um, they actually, where we lived at one stage, um, there's lots of houses and in each area there's like a central um, play area, grass park area. And within that there's a little building that houses recycling for everything, uh, even light bulbs, batteries, um, obviously paper, cardboard, plastic um, and all this stuff. So I think generally in Sweden, it was very easy for us to get on board with this way of thinking. So when we came back to London, we sort of, we tried continuing to do that as much as possible uh, in our day-to-day -day life here, what with recycling and um, using uh, compost uh, bin and stuff. And actually having moved here to London now, it's clear that this particular borough that we live in, in London, the Hackney borough, is actually more sustainability driven than Brighton was. And whenever I go, we go back to Brighton now, we realize like how primitive the recycling services are there, which is kind of <laughs> the opposite to what we used to think. But I think the main uh, difference between Sweden and UK in terms of sustainability is in UK, um, things still function by different councils, different towns and you know different municipalities whereas in Sweden it seems that things are a bit more national mm. and one system that is applied to the whole country whereas in UK you still find some places are better than others and totally. it's a bit more kind of variated from uh, town to town. Yeah really trying to remember from festivals in Sweden like sustainability steps in their festivals and I just remember the other um, uh, the cups and all these things. Have you ever been to a festival actually that has been clearly sustainable and it's like a dream that you want to to adapt your festival to? <laughs> I don't know. I struggle to think of being inspired by a particular festival. But even thinking of Harang, I have quite good memories because the last time I was in Harang, I was working in the in a bar and in a cafe and. I was collaborating with some people in Harang. Um, we were actually going to some meetings and discussing mm. how can we reduce waste in Harang. So I, um, we even spoke to kind of the local council at Harang um, who increased 
the uh, waste collection for us and uh, we would we had like a really good conversation about um making more signage um separating food waste um making clearer instructions for recycling etc so i think herang obviously being in sweden and being quite established festival they are putting quite good effort in recycling and stuff yeah herang is a real nice dance camp organized in a village in sweden for entire month there are uh, classes of vernacular jazz lini hop um, they had in the daily meetings um, little skits of people showing how they should be recycling that was amazing actually so do you have any tips for people um, that they want to organize a more sustainable festival from the um, things that we mentioned already um reducing uh plastic cups for water um so that was encouraging people to bring their own uh bottles or their own cups um charge for plastic cups and another thing that we've done we um stopped using plastic bottles um that we sell at the bar and we've got uh glass uh bottles for water and all the drinks are in glass bottles or cans and they are much easier to recycle than plastic and um, and then another thing that we've um not mentioned um uh, is offsetting the carbon footprint for uh teachers flights so Sam can tell a bit Uh, more about that. Yeah, I think this is perhaps uh quite a bit more important than the whole plastic issue. It's easy for us to relate to the plastic cups issue because we can see them, but what we don't really think about that much there needs to be more conversations about is how to deal with the carbon footprint of traveling. I all of our teachers um for the last, I don't know, five or six events have all been international teachers and we don't want to change that. So the easiest way we can sort of get around that personally as a small organization uh without any sort of <laughs> big uh change from the government which is i think what is really needed but maybe i digress blah 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 we offset the um the carbon emissions of the traveling with a company called uh, my climate i actually double checked it yesterday because i couldn't remember the name of it but uh, basically you go into my climate you can put in where the person is traveling from where they're traveling to if it's a return flight uh if they've got any uh layovers um at a different airport so if it's not direct and then it will calculate um how much co2 was uh given off um so we've done that and the first time I did it I was actually pleasantly surprised that it's not that expensive to do um when we had Daniela Maria from Russia and then the other five teachers were all from europe and i think in total the cost was something like 170 180 pounds it was definitely below 200 pounds so it's not a big expenditure i mean obviously 200 quid is 200 quid but it's not outside of our scope to be able to cover that and i think that should be sort of built into the budget of any festival that's having international dj's or uh teachers and that's something that i would encourage uh the dancers and attendees uh to do as well um a lot of these flight companies have a little tick box that you can add 10 or 15 20 euros um 
to your flight to offset the carbon footprint. And even using buses as well, they have um, this option as well. Um, so I think that's something that should become more normal to do, um, you know, contributing to offset your travel. Yeah, it's, it's actually like a very great initiative to start doing that and start donating money, trying to fix the issue. Sometimes we've read articles, um, especially now that we're doing all this research for the podcast, how uh, people can, they tend a bit to rely on that, um, on the donation and that, oh yeah, I'm going to give some money um, and that, that's going to be okay. And my carbon emissions are a bit, uh, are not as grave as they should be. But yeah, I'm realizing that there are so many more steps apart from that, you know? And recently I was reading how you can be sustainable at a festival with not actually having meat or um, bringing your own food in the festival and not having packaging. Are you doing something about the meals actually? Is that, um, are you trying <laughs> yeah. to have a plant-based diet uh, during the festival? I mean, I wouldn't say that we um, force everyone to eat a plant-based diet. Gabs and I, we tend to not eat that much meat um, ourselves anyway. Um, so I've not given that too much thought. We give, um, we have, you know, vegan options for lunch and dinner and uh, obviously breakfast as well when they're, where they're being hosted uh, or where they're staying for their accommodation for the teachers. Um, we don't serve lots of meat. There are meat options. And we've had teachers in the past that have requested that they want a good portion of meat <laughs> in their in their meals which is obviously totally fine everyone's entitled to have what they want i wouldn't say that there's like a drive for us to have a plant-based um, menu at jats for the staff but i wouldn't say that we encourage meat meat, meat eating either we ask the hosts of the staff to um, as part of their deal they uh, give breakfast to the uh, to the staff lunch is made at the venue so uh, we have an amazing volunteer Annie and she um, makes all the sandwiches fresh um, and then dinner is usually a takeout so I guess that is one thing that could be improved is not having a takeout but there's also a line where we need to sort of um, give ourselves a chance to breathe at the event and we can't do everything, I would say. If the event was bigger, then we could um, facilitate having more volunteers and more members of staff to be able to do these things. But we've got about 200 people, attendees, so, so we're not a very big event. Uh, that is something that would be nice to improve on if we did grow. But um, yeah, that's pretty much the food situation. Are you aspiring to grow the festival a bit more? I would say actually no I there are many great big huge events around Europe that are fantastic um and I'm quite happy for <laughs> for other people to take on that stress of organizing those enormous events but Jats we've got quite an intimate community which has come naturally from being quite small I think um as I said before a lot of returning attendees and stuff don't get me wrong, we do get quite a few people from abroad. We've not really got any desires to make it our full-time job. It is just a hobby, really, uh, organising the event. So, yeah. And I think our goal at the moment is um, we almost reached the capacity for our venue, um, so we can't have uh, that much more um, people 
um, but every time we try to improve the quality and work on these, you know, comments and feedback that we get from the attendees and trying to improve the quality rather than quantity at this point. Yeah. Okay, great. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's really, really nice. It's nice to share our experience because we're just, neither of us are event organizers, you know. Well, Gabby's an architect and I'm an engineer, so this is just, uh, we're not professionals by any means. <laughs> and don't take what we do as uh, the way it should be done. But I think everyone is pretty sensible. That was a great interview. I think I, I really liked the way that Gabby and Sam found a way of bringing together their passions of dancing and sustainability together in one event. Yeah, it's also amazing that they realize how important it is to think about the impact that you have, uh, even at the at an event that it's of a small uh, scale. And also, I love the fact that they gave so many tips for reducing ecological impact when event planning. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out our social media accounts. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Creative to the Rescue. We post interesting facts, reflections, and tips about the climate crisis. And obviously, you'll find all the information concerning future episodes. This podcast is produced by Franco Capuccio, Francesca Lievi, Vanciane Jones, and Anaiba Pafanasiu. See you in the next episode.